Revelation chapter 19, if you will. Revelation chapter 19, if you'll turn there, and then I'm going to read it. And uh, tonight is wonderful. You know why tonight is wonderful? Jesus Christ returns. <laughs> it's been a long time of coming, and I'm excited about sharing it tonight. It, it has been a uh, probably one of the hardest chapters. I would have never thought this would have been my hardest one. But it's been one of the hardest ones to pull together for me. But uh, I hope I do a good job tonight for you. And I hope you go home blessed. I hope you go home excited about your future. And that the Lord will touch you in tonight's teaching. Revelation chapter 19 verse 1. After this I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting. Praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He has punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the murder of his servants. And again, their voices rang out. Praise the Lord. The smoke from that city ascends forever and ever. And then the 24 elders and the four living beings fell down and worshiped God who was sitting on the throne. They cried out, Amen. Praise the Lord. And from the throne came a voice that said, Praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him, from the least to the greatest. Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the, the fine linen presents, represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, These are true words that come from God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said, No, don't worship me. I am a servant of God, just like you and your brothers and sisters who testify about their faith in Jesus. Worship only God, for the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. And then I saw heaven open and a white horse, shoo, was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And a name was written on him that no one understood except himself. And he wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. Amen. The armies of heaven, dressed in their finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of all lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, Come, gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, generals, and strong warriors, of horses and their riders, and of all humanity, both free and slave, small and great. And then I saw the beast 
and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. Miracles that had deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding on the white horse. And the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. Can you say amen to the reading of the word? Oh, that's a great chapter, right? I feel like I could just go home and feel, feel victorious. Oh, just, just to finally get through all the garbage of what we've read and all the hell and all the torment. And then Jesus Christ comes back, the thing that you're alive for. Um, what I read to you is your future. It's a weird thing to be able to be able to see your future. You're reading your future. For those of us that are saved, you just projected your life and your destiny into a future moment when you will come back with Jesus the King and you will rule and reign with Him forever. Uh, I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing that God in His majesty could give us a glimpse of what we're, we know to be true and to be part of what's coming so what I want to do tonight in chapter 19 is a little different. Uh, I really kind of prayed about how to pull this off in a, in a very meaningful way for you. Most of us, if we were born again or religious at all, if we have any religion to us, we're going to know about the moment when Jesus Christ comes. Many call it his second coming. They get it confused with the rapture because, you know, many think the rapture was his second coming. But the thing about the second coming that's different from what we would term the rapture is the second coming, his feet actually touch the earth. He's back home. He's back to the place where he redeemed us. He's back to the place where he's going to rule. He's back to the place where his kingdom is going to be set up. And that's what is termed the second coming. His feet actually hit the ground. But in Christianity, you know, depending on the denomination you grew up in, the second coming of Jesus is just, it's just always a picture of a horse coming back in the clouds with angels following everybody clouds. But there's really not much teaching on really what will that moment be like. The beauty of God is everything God does is processed out. I know we don't like process. We like instantaneous. But God is a process God. Uh, the seed will crush the head of the serpent, 4,000 years of process. Uh, Noah, you will build me a boat, 100 years of process. And here's the weird thing about Noah, in the 100 years of process, the trees were already in a process of growing. Everything was in a process. Uh, David, you know, when David slew Goliath, it was a process. I know we like the moment when the rock hits the head, but the whole thing was a process. It was a process of a young kid that had to be born, that had to learn how to use a sling, that had to learn how to be a shepherd, that had to find a rock, that had to have a stream that created that rock, and that rock had to be molded and shaped in a way that would fit in the sling. So by the time David gets on to the battlefield and the rock hits him, there had been a lot of process going on. The stream was working on the rock. Life was working on the shepherd boy, the talents of his skills, and then the death of Goliath. So when we see quick moments in Scripture, Mary, you're going to have a baby, a very quick moment, an appearance of an angel to tell her she's going to be pregnant, 
It's not a quick moment. It's thought out. It's, it's itemized out by the prophetic timeline of God. So when we come to this moment of Jesus' second coming, though it comes in a, in a moment of, you know, many people say this, in a twinkling of an eye, like a, like a thief in the night, he'll, he'll come and catch you off guard, but it is a very processed out thing. It's not like God wakes up on Monday and says, I don't think today's the day. He literally has thought it out. It's process. So when Jesus steps his feet on planet earth, it's not a haphazard thing. It's very structured to what's going to happen. Now, I'm going to take you back a few to way back at the very beginning of our teaching. We came to this thought that God is a God of time and that everything God starts, he what? He finishes, right? And we started with the alpha Jesus, who's also the omega. We said that Time was a person, not just an amount of counting. It's not just numbers and hours, but it's a person. It's the Alpha Jesus who's the start. It's the Mega. He's the first. He's the last. He's the beginning. He's the end. And then the start is there is an Eden in heaven. There's an Eden on earth. And there's still an Eden in heaven at the finish. And then we're going to see that Eden come down and all. I gave you this a long while back just to kind of spur you for what we're going to talk about tonight. We went back to those seven beginnings and we were teaching that in everything God begins, He has to finish. And where we are in chapter 19 is we are in number four and in one, two chapters, we're going to go four, three, two, one. And it's going to be very quick. It's, it's going to catch itself as God finishes the Jewish nation and the promises He's given as God finishes sin and rebellion, God will finish the kingdom of Satan and a new heaven and a new earth will come and the kingdom of God will be established. So we've been working through all these things, talking about the church being raptured and then talking about the Jewish nation and what's been going on from chapter 4 all the way up until now. But we're moving now into the finishing. And I, I just, I'm going to give you all seven at the same time so you can just write uh, and this doesn't have anything to do with my teaching tonight, but I just thought it was interesting that these seven things are what show up in this chapter I just read. The first thing that we, we get about the finishing is that salvation and glory belong to God. It doesn't belong to humans. And that His judgments are just and true. In other words, whatever God's about to pull off in Revelation 20, 21, the judgments He's going to do, you better know it's right. I've heard people say, well, what about the jungle guy that shows up before heaven and he's never heard of God? Here's what we know about that, and we can say it with a certainty. Whatever happens is fair and right because everything God does is just and true in his own nature. Maybe not to us in our opinions, but his own nature. Then uh, we see that he punishes the great prostitute. This, uh, this system we learned about. He finishes it. Then he avenges the murder of his servants. And then the Bible says the bride had prepared herself, ready to come back, and they were given pure linen to wear. And then I, I landed on this one, number seven, because it, it made a statement that stuck out to me, and I thought, it's really true. Uh, I don't know if we talk about it a lot, and I don't know if I've ever thought about it a lot, but number seven, he wages a righteous war. I think when we think Jesus is coming back, it's a hoorah moment for us, right? We all clap, hoorah, he's home. Yeah. 
But that hoorah moment is a, is a time frame that's not very hoorah-ish. It is a slaughter. It's, it's a literal finishing of rebellion and sin, and it's going to be an absolute slaughter. But it titles it this, it's a righteous war. He's coming back to finish something that was started back in the Garden of Eden and to honor a prophecy that he would come and finish the iniquity of sin, finish the rebellion of his people, and he would set up a kingdom. And the way he's going to do that is a righteous war. I kind of feel like we're almost getting in the, the throes of it now as Christians are having to learn how to war righteously. What I sense happening in Christians now in 2021 is those that are passionately pursuing Jesus are starting to rise up as warriors, meaning we don't really care if we get canceled. We don't really care if we get made fun of. This is who we are. This is what we believe, and this is how we're going to live, regardless of what culture tells us, regardless of what culture says about it. We're going to live and wage a righteous war, and I truly believe we're there. I believe we're entering into a righteous war, uh, a war over scriptures, a war over your faith, a war over what you believe, and it's just the beginning. But let's set the stage for this righteous war. So I'm going to give you seven things that will set the stage of what this coming of Jesus will look like, and then I'm going to tackle each one of those with just scripture. So you've got a, a section on your notes at the bottom that just says notes. It's because once I give you the seven, I'm just going to run through them. I'm going to tackle each one of them with scripture that will paint a picture that I'll show you at the end because my heart is to paint a picture of what it will potentially look like when Jesus Christ splits the skies and comes back. So you'll forever have a thought more than just a guy riding a white horse. You will know what's about to come forth as we process it out. So let's just set the stage number one. As Jesus starts his ascension back to earth, and he's coming from heaven to earth, he has moved the armies of the Antichrist to surround Jerusalem. He's worked it in such a way that the Antichrist armies that were in Babylon that moved into the Megiddo, the valley of Jezreel, into the battle of Armageddon, God has moved the armies of the Antichrist positioned on the west side of Jerusalem and positioned south. Everybody remember when we talked about Basra, Petra. He has moved the armies of the, of the Antichrist toward Petra who are coming after the Jews that God has hidden away to keep them safe unless they, the ones that he has sealed to protect. And so these armies have moved together. And uh, the second thing that begins to happen is Jesus appears in the clouds. So once Jesus has set the armies up, he appears in the clouds. The clouds part, and we'll show you what that's going to look like. The third thing is Jesus goes to Petra first. When Jesus Christ comes back to earth, the first place he goes is not Jerusalem. He goes back to the, to the land of Edom, which is in the south, the, the south part of Jerusalem and Israel. And that's where Botsra and the Petra, where they will be you know, locked away from the Antichrist, 
He goes there first. So we're going to look at all this. Then after that, Jesus moves across the plains and shows up to the Mount of Olives. When he gets to the Mount of Olives, he splits the Mount of Olives in two. That's a pretty powerful God that can stand on a mountain and just split the mountain directly in two. But he does it very purposely. It's not just that he wants to show his might and power. He does it for a very purposeful reason. Then number six, Jesus destroys the Antichrist. Just give a shout right there. <laughs> He's going to lose, praise God. Uh, it makes me feel good. And then uh, only, only Jesus would care about the mess. He cleans up his mess. Come on, parents. There's a good option for your children. Even Jesus cleans up his mess. Now this is what we call the second coming of Christ. So when we think about it, I want you to think more than just him riding a white horse. I want you to really concentrate on this is what it's going to be when we come back with him. And I want you to know what's going to be happening and where you're going to go and what you will be doing. All right, Because we say we come back with him, right? I mean, that's what we all teach, that the armies of heaven, we come back with him. His saints follow him. So let's just tackle uh, each of them one at a time. So now down in your notes, we're just going to pick off all seven, and I'm just going to read scripture. I'll do it slow so you can write them down and study later, and I will make comments along the way, and then at the end of each section, I'll give some uh, visual detail. So the first thing upon Jesus' return is he has to begin to gather the armies of the Antichrist together to finally deal with them. If you remember from last week, Babylon has been destroyed. It's on fire. And it's pushed the Antichrist armies toward Jerusalem. It's forced them to go out. And now time is ticking pretty clearly. And the Antichrist has set himself up in the temple. The false prophets work in his magic arts. And everything's kind of going on. So let's just read it in Zechariah 12. A lot of this is from the Old Testament prophets that we never read. And the reason we never read them is they don't make sense because we don't understand they're talking about the end. He says this, I will make Jerusalem. I would like to throw in as well through, through this teaching that I again believe that the majority of the book of Revelation is about the Jews and not the church. So he says this on his coming. I will make Jerusalem like an intoxicating drink that makes the nearby nations stagger when they send their armies to besiege Jerusalem and Judah. On that day, everybody say on that day. I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock and all the nations will gather against it to try to move it but will only hurt themselves. So as this Antichrist army moves, what we need to know is that God is moving them strategically. They think they're moving to take the world over, but God is moving them strategically to destroy them. How many of you know he's a, he's a God of the heaven's armies, right? He's a great general. He's a great commander-in-chief. He's working, he's working a process. So even though on earth it's going to seem that Jerusalem is besieged and they're being overran and they're about to be slaughtered, God is moving, moving those armies there because he's positioning them for a defeat. Zechariah 14, 1 and 2. Watch, for the day of the Lord is coming when your possessions will be plundered right in front of you. 
I will gather all the nations to fight against Jerusalem. In other words, again, this book that's about the Jew and the, and the Jewish nation. The city will be taken. The house is looted. The women will be raped. Half of the population will be taken into captivity and the rest will be left among the ruins of the city. So God has used these armies and he's pushing them to Jerusalem and as they're coming into Jerusalem, they're ravaging Jerusalem. They're killing everybody in Jerusalem. They're raping the women. They're killing the children. They're looting the houses. And it appears like Israel is going to lose completely. The Jews are going to be completely wiped off planet Earth. Here's a picture of what's going on. Once Babylon is destroyed, the city where I believe the Antichrist will make his headquarters, he marches his horses across the plains and he begins to push into Petra to kill the Jews that are hidden there by God and then he begins to besiege the city to murder and annihilate all of the Jews. I, I put horses up there to remind you that this is not going to be modern day warfare. Remember what we taught that most by this time uh, what three quarters of the earth is all blood, all the water's blood, all the oceans are blood We've lost three-quarters of all humanity. Every island is laid low. Every mountain is laid low. Earthquakes, disease, pestilence has ruined everything on planet Earth. And accordingly, what we have at this level, at Revelation 19, is almost all the nations of the world have been destroyed except this little Middle Eastern block of nations that will work together following the Antichrist to besiege a little town of Jerusalem. You would wonder why anybody would care about something the size of Rhode Island. But it's because it's the home of God Almighty. You think there's plenty of land for the devil to go make, but he's, but he's pushing to Jerusalem. I'll just throw some pictures up. Here is a picture of the land of Megiddo where the armies will gather together and they will, they will get ready at the Battle of Armageddon. And they will get ready to uh, besiege the city of Jerusalem. And this is a little north. Uh, I'll go back to the picture about where I have that horse. And uh, right at Jericho is about where the uh, Megiddo is at the foot of the horse on the front hoof. Those armies will gather at this big plain and they will prepare for battle. And they will ascend into the west of Jerusalem and begin to try to take over the city. As they try to take over the city... This is where the Antichrist is set up, uh, at least somewhere close to this, if not here. This is the Temple Mount, the present day. Uh, that's a picture from 2021. So that's a modern day picture of the temple uh, where it is said that God will come and the Temple Mount and the worship will be set up. And so that's what we would assume that the devil sets up his image in this temple and proclaims himself as God. And so he's ruling from there. That's his kingdom. He, he's looking to rule there. He, he proclaims himself as God. But what he's doing is he's coming from the west and he's pushing all the Jews and killing them. And I, I think the reason he comes from the west is because as he comes from the west and pushes them eastward, he's going to push all of them right into the middle of the temple to worship him. And if you don't worship me, I'll kill you. So this is what's been set up. God, according to the prophet Zechariah, God set this moment up. 
I know it may seem unfair, but it's not unfair. God has a wonderful, great plan. And now that he's set the stage, we have what we know in Scripture to be called the second coming of Jesus Christ. The armies are in place. The Jews are distraught. They've lost all hope. They don't know why God feels as he's abandoned them. They don't know where their Messiah is. And then the skies part, and I would like to paint a picture now of what that's going to look like when that happens. So let's go to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew says, For the Son of Man will come with his angels. So when we come, we're going to be going with angels. How cool is that, right? It won't just be me and you. It'll be a, a myriad of angels that will be riding with us. So it's seemingly what happens is when he comes, it's all of heaven's armies are coming at once. It's a heavenly download of all of God's power. It's not just going to come down, but we're riding with him. But the beauty of this is what I love as we read is, is that I don't think any of us are going to be fighting at all, nor the angels going to be fighting. It is my belief that Jesus himself does the whole thing. He establishes himself as king and lord of lords, and all we are is going to be along for the ride watching. Next scripture, Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then at last, the sign of the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens. And there will be deep mourning among all the people of the earth, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, and then this phrase, with power and great glory. Now to understand what's going to happen, people on the earth will be in the middle of carnage, uh, two-thirds of the earth destroyed, blood, all water blood, most people dead, uh, everything shaken, earthquakes, hailstones, 75 pounds falling. And then can you imagine in one day, every light in the universe is put out? We have total darkness for an instant of a moment. The sun is gone, the moon is gone, and the stars are gone. It will be a moment on earth of pitch black darkness where no one will be able to see anything because there will be zero source of light. I don't believe there will be any light at all on planet earth. And the reasoning for that is because when the heavens open up, the glory of God will be seen among all mankind. And every eye will behold him. And every eye will see him because the planet will be completely dark and then the heavens open up and God rolls back the scroll and there sits Jesus who of his own title is called the light of the world. And so you can see why God, uh, the moon gives no light and the stars fall from the sky and the sun's not shining because what he's going to teach us, he is the light of the world. Everything else was given to you, the moon and the stars and the sun, according to Genesis, was given to us so we could mark the days and the hours and the time. And what he's saying by darkening the sun, the moon and the stars is the day, the hour and the time is now. There's nothing else to measure. This is the final act. It's over now. Time is about to be finished as you would know it in this prophetic, in this prophetic timeline. Zechariah 14. 
Then the Lord, my God, will come and all his holy ones with him. On that day, the sources of light will no longer shine. Yet there will be continuous day. Only the Lord knows how this could happen. There will be no normal day or night, for at evening time it will still be light. He kind of tells us we don't know how this could be. At least his prophecy tells us that we don't know how there could be no source of light, but it's continually day all the time. I'm going to go with the New Testament kind of reveals it to us. We are the light of the world. And so when the light of the world parts the sky and we, the lights of the world, who have the light of Christ come, all of a sudden every believer becomes the light of the world. And even though there's no sun to shine, no moon and no stars, it is continually day because we are the light of the world, which is a weird concept, but it may make sense of why he calls us stuff like this. You know, it's because there's a purpose for you. You're going to be shining and you're going to be working in the middle of a darkness, but it'll be day because, you know, I mean, that's kind of Neo there, right? Like, uh, sort of like on the Matrix, but walking around in a glorified body like a firefly. And, uh, you know, my, my, my thing is if God can make the hind end of a firefly light up in the middle of the night, he could light you up. So you get a glorified body and you just walk around glowing like a fire. So let's not be too... Uh, you know, facetious about it. If God can do that with a bug, he could do it with you and use you, you to be the, the literal light of the world, which is a profound concept to the beauty and power of Christianity and resurrection. Revelation 19. Now here's where we pick up. We pull it all together and John says this, then I saw heaven open. Now what we saw with that is everything is dark. All the lights are gone. And the angels are prepared, and now heaven opens up. And the first thing we're going to see is a white horse. It goes all the way back to the Antichrist, who when he came in Revelation 6 was on a white horse. And he says, I see a white horse was standing there, and its rider is named Faithful and True. And now it's the time for a righteous war. So the first thing the Antichrist All of his followers, everyone with the mark of the beast, everyone that's the army of the Antichrist, the first thing they will see at the end of this dark moment is the signification of a righteous war that's about to begin. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written that no one understood except he himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. And then here we are. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest, purest white linen, followed him on white horses. Come on, praise God. So there's the coming. Well, here's your typical picture. So I thought I'd just give it to you. That's the normal work of art that is given. A glorious moment from from the viewpoint of watching it in the sky. But if you're on earth, it is a sign of a righteous, bloody carnage that is about to take place. The ugliest battle that has ever been, more death that has ever been. There's more death and rotting flesh on planet earth at this time than ever before in the history of the world. And the king of kings is coming home to clean it up and coming home to establish a kingdom. Well, when he comes in the sky and he parts the sky like that, he's got to go somewhere. He has to take his horse somewhere. And so the first place he's going to stop, Jesus is first steps back on earth 
All right. There's a few scriptures in the Old Testament that will tell us what he's going to do when he comes back. Let's look at the first one from Isaiah 34. And when my sword has finished its work in the heavens, it will fall upon Edom, the nation I've marked for destruction. The sword of the Lord is drenched with the blood and covered with fat, with blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of rams prepared for a sacrifice. Yes, and here he comes, the Lord will offer a sacrifice in the city of Botsra. He's going to come back, and when he comes back, he's going to offer a sacrifice in the city of Botsra. Here's that place, the Petra, uh, where the treasury is and the temples are, where several lessons ago I told you, I think from the prophet Micah, that they're stored here and they're kept safe here from the Antichrist being able to pursue them. Let's continue on with Isaiah 63. This is what the prophet Isaiah says, who is this who comes from Edom, from the city of Botsra, with his clothing stained red? Who is this in royal robes marching in his great strength? And then it answers us. It is I, the Lord, announcing your salvation. It is I, the Lord, who has the power to save. So Jesus comes down to this city to pick up this remnant of Jews that have been saved and he's going to annihilate the southern portion of the Antichrist army and he's going to... He's going to totally destroy the city of Edom. He's going to take this remnant of people and begin to march north toward Jerusalem. Isaiah 63 answers it for us. Why are your clothes so red? As if you've been treading out the grapes. Jesus, the one that says, I'm the Lord. I have been treading the winepress alone. No one was there to help me. In my anger, I have trampled my enemies as if they were grapes, and in my fury I've trampled my foes, their blood has stained my clothes. So this Jesus coming back here, that is this cute, handsome little fella. It's seemingly what we're going to get is much more of a Middle Eastern warrior who is going to come back and literally slaughter people. I know we call him the gracious one. We call him full of grace and full of mercy. But when he comes the second time, grace and mercy, he doesn't come that way. He comes to bring war. He comes to bring judgment. And he comes to finish sin. So this blue-eyed, cute little Jesus with pretty hair, what we get by the time he lands in Botsra is that all of his clothes are stained with blood because he's slaughtered every one of the Antichrist. So I can kind of picture him like a Mel Gibson on the battlefield. Sweat pouring off his body, blood all over him because he's murdered. I won't say murdered. They, they got it coming because of sin. But he kills them all. And when he kills them all, he takes all these that are in Botsra when he comes to do his war and he slaughters those armies, and now he begins to move toward the Mount of Olives with this remnant. So from what I'm gathering from reading Scripture is, we and the angels of heaven follow Jesus to Botsra. Jesus annihilates the Antichrist enemies and totally makes due of them, gathers his children, his holy people that are there, that are hid out, and we and he and them make our way toward Jerusalem. 
I don't know how long that'll take. I, I don't know if he'll translate us and we just show up. It kind of lends itself that we're going to make a, a journey. We're going to be walking. And I don't know what that's going to be like to have the thousands upon thousands upon millions upon millions of angels and saints with this little small segment of a remnant walking toward Jerusalem with the blood of the enemy all on him soaked and he makes his way up the Mount of Olives which is the next thing. There's only a few scriptures that really tell us about this next moment but it's it probably is one of the most spoken moments because this is where we assume Jesus comes and lands on the Mount of Olives and it's this clean, righteous, you know, I don't mean righteous, but this clean, clothed and kind of what I picture is Jesus is going to walk up there with a blood-stoked robe of all his enemies' blood with all of us behind him, with all of the armies of heaven behind him, with the remnant of the Jews behind him, and this scripture will tell us what he will do. Habakkuk. I see God moving across the deserts from Eden. Edom. So what it lends me to believe is we're not going to be translated. We're actually just going to be taking a journey with Jesus. I see him coming across Eden and he's coming from Mount Paran. His brilliant splendor fills the heavens and the earth is filled with his praise. Can you imagine? I mean, just think about it. Millions and millions and millions of saints, a myriad of angels walking across a plain praising God. We even read it, praise the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Can, can you hear millions of people walking across a desert? Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And he's on a horse, a white horse, dripping blood with his sword in his hand, a sword in his mouth, which is the word of God. And we're marching. Lord, don't you know the Antichrist hind end is going to be tight? Right? Like I thought I, had it, I thought I had him dead to right. But Habakkuk says he comes across the plains from Eden and he's headed toward Jerusalem. And now when he comes to the Mount of Olives, he walks up on the Mount of Olives and does something very supernatural. Zechariah 14.3 And then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he fought in times past. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will split apart. And then this in blue, very important. He will make a wide valley running from east to west. I'll tell you why in a minute. Half of the mountain will move toward the north and half will move toward the south. And you will flee through this valley. For it will reach across the Azel. Yes, you will flee as you did from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. Jesus sets his feet when he comes on the actual Mount of Olives. That is the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, present day picture. And then it says he splits it in two. And so I don't know how he does it except what I believe is this. I believe his word is so powerful. And Hebrews 1 says he holds everything together with the power of his word. I believe he stands on that mountain and just with his word speaks and the mountain parts in two. And the mountain creates a valley that runs from the city. So this is what it looks like from an aerial view. Now that the old city is the Jerusalem. I circled the Temple Mount. Uh, 
so there's a circle of where the Antichrist image will be and where he will be trying to push all of... He's coming from the west, so the left of the television screen, and he's pushing all the Jews in to kill them, pushing them toward the Temple Mount. Jesus comes and puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives, there is a valley that runs in the middle that will be very significant why that valley's there in a minute. We'll look at that. But he says he puts his feet on the Mount of Olives and then he splits it in two. Now, the reason Jesus splits it in two is his kids, the Jews, need a way of escape before Jesus annihilates everyone in the city. He's going to give his remnant of people so for the Jew, this moment when Jesus Christ steps down on this mountaintop and he, he steps down on the mountaintop, it's going to be the moment they recognize, here's our Messiah. Who we've rejected, and we're going to read that in a moment. We've turned our backs on him, and they are in such anguish that they're praying that God will come save them. And God comes to the holy city and Jesus steps on the mountain. And the moment he steps on the mountain and splits it, the Jews finally believe he is the Messiah. And he has come to redeem God's people. And when he splits the mountains, his people are allowed an escape route before he destroys the Antichrist. Brings us to the next one, the destruction of the Antichrist. This is where it gets really interesting. That God is about to finish Satan once and for all. Let's see how he's going to do it. Isaiah 63. For the time has come for me to avenge my people. To ransom them from their oppressors. I was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So I myself stepped in to save them. With my strong arm and my wrath sustained me. I crushed the nations in my anger. I made them stagger and fall to the ground, spilling their blood upon the earth. So this is the righteous war that is starting to rage now. Zechariah 12. On that day, just picture this kind of war. I will cause every horse to panic and every rider to lose his nerve. Again, that's why I don't believe there's tanks and all. I believe this is a prophetic moment that we're kind of back to hand-to-hand -to -hand combat with animals and horses, not tanks. I'll cause every horse to panic and every rider to lose his nerve. But I'll watch over my people Judah and I will build all the horses of their... I will blind all the horses of their enemies. And the clans of Judah will say to themselves, The people of Jerusalem have found strength in the Lord of heaven's armies, their God. What an awesome moment to be standing on the Mount of Olives. And the Antichrist is trying to come against you. And in an instant, every horse freaks out. In an instant, every rider is in panic. In an instant, every horse is totally blind. Our God does a good war, right? <laughs> and he comes to avenge his people. Zechariah 12, 8 through 9. On that day, how many of you know God's pretty specific? On that day, the Lord will defend the people of Jerusalem. The weakest among them will be as mighty as King David. And the royal descendants will be like God, like the angel of the Lord that goes before them. For on that day, 
I will begin to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Again, why I feel the book is such a Jewish book. Zechariah 12. Then I will pour out my spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and on the people of Jerusalem. They will look on me whom they've pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. They will grieve bitterly for him as a firstborn son who has died. The sorrow and mourning in Jerusalem on that day will be like the great mourning from Hadad Ramon in the valley of Megiddo. What he tells us is the moment his feet touch the Mount of Olives and they realize he's the Messiah, in some way they're going to know that that's the one they rejected. And they begin to mourn when they see Jesus Christ, who they said was not their Messiah, is their Messiah. And it says they grieve bitterly for him. They realize their rejection. They realize their failure. They realize what they've done. Zechariah 14. And the Lord will send a plague on all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their people, this is almost like walking dead. Their people will become like walking corpses. Their flesh rotting away. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day they will be terrified, stricken by the Lord with great panic. And they'll start fighting their neighbors hand to hand. <laughs> it almost does not seem like a fair fight, right? I know you're down here thinking, I just thought the devil has so much power, he's coming against me. This is what happens to him. The, the Lord God is coming. Everybody who sold their soul to him, everybody who fought with him, the horses are blind, the horses panic, the people panic, they fight each other, their flesh rots off, their eyes rot out of their socket, and uh, even their own mouths rot which is an amazing thing of what sin will do to you. I know it never tells you that, but, but it does. Zechariah 14, 15. This same plague will strike the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and all the other animals in the enemy's camp. In other words, God's going to make sure they'll have nothing to use for warfare. There will be not one thing they're going to be able to count on, nothing they can ride, nothing they can use to fight this battle. He's going to touch it all. Revelation 14 is where it gets very interesting. And another angel who had the power to destroy with fire came from the altar and he shouted to the angel with a sharp sickle, Swing your sickle now to gather the clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth, for they are ripe for judgment. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and loaded the grapes into the great winepress of God's wrath. The grapes were trampled in the winepress outside the city and the blood flowed from the wine press in a stream about 180 miles long. This uh, Kidron Valley is what they're talking about. That when God begins to come and destroy all of the enemies of the Antichrist, and I'll tell you why it'll be so powerful, but their blood piles up and flows over 180 miles to a horse's bridle. So you're talking about five feet deep of blood that flows for 180 miles, and I'll tell you how that's possible in just a minute. Let me get back to the scripture we were at. Revelation 19, 13 and 16. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his title was the word of God. And the armies of heaven dressed in the finest and pure. And now here it comes. This is going to tell us how he's going to do it. From out of his mouth came a sharp sword. 
to strike down the nations. And he will release the fierce wrath of God. How he's going to do it is with the power of his word. His word is going to be the sword that comes to fight the battle. It's why today your mouth is so powerful. Your mouth is like a sword. Your words have the power of life and death. God's word, which is what we call the Bible, is so powerful. Why the enemy cannot handle it. He cannot come against it. Uh, It's why Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. He was teaching us the way we overcome the Antichrist kingdom is it is written. I believe when Jesus comes and he stands and begins to do battle... He will do battle with his word. Let's back it up with Hebrews 4.12. Very familiar passage of scripture. But for the word of God is alive and powerful and it's sharper than any sharpest two-edged sword cutting between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed. This is my opinion only, but I like it, so I'll give it to you. I think the reason the blood flows so quickly, 180 miles and up to a horse's bridle. Uh, You know, if if we shoot somebody with a bullet, it takes a while to bleed out, right? I mean, it just takes a while. But I don't believe Jesus does it that way. I believe the way Jesus is going to defeat all of the armies is his word is going to cut them like a double-edged sword. And he's going to split them in two, joints and marrow. He's going to fillet the human soul open. And there will be nothing laid bare before him. And he's laying them open for like a fillet. So he just, with his word, he splits the marrow. He splits the joints with his word and fillets them open. That instantaneous fillet of his word of the enemies that just split in two, the blood just rushes so deep and so high that it begins to flow down the Kidron Valley but the, but the reasoning behind that, I'll, I'll teach you in a minute, is very clear, which is kind of why I lean to that opinion. Here's what Paul says in Thessalonians. The man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth. So something's going to be going on on the Mount of Olives that day with Jesus just speaking the word. And as he speaks the word, the Antichrist is destroyed with the splendor of his coming. Back to Revelation 19. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies were gathered together. And verse 20, and the beast was captured and the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, he deceived all those who had accepted the mark of the beast and both the beast and the false prophet were thrown alive, come on, into the lake burning with sulfur. Praise God. He finally deals with the devil. The day of the Antichrist is thrown away. The false prophet is thrown into the lake of fire. Here's something very interesting. No other human being is in the lake of fire yet. But but the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to be put there as human beings because remember the devil inhabits the body of the person that will be the Antichrist and they're both going to be thrown there first. So these will be the first two humans that will be put into the lake of fire for selling their soul to Satan. Satan will be dealt with later. But now we have a carnage of sorts. We have a city that's destroyed. We have a, gosh knows how many soldiers and enemies that are filleted open with their entrails hanging out everywhere and blood everywhere and Jesus with blood all over him with us just kind of watching the whole thing like, wow, this is amazing. 
So what is he going to do? Well, he's got to clean up the mess. How does he do it? Revelation 19, 17. And I saw an angel standing on the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, Come, gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. We, see, what we, we teach that that's where we're going to go to heaven and eat with God. You know, let's go up there. No, this is where God's going to have a banquet for the vultures. Come and eat the flesh of the kings, the generals, and the strong warriors. The flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all humanity, both free and slave. So even that old nasty bird that God saved on Noah's boat was saved for a prophetic purpose. I know we see him out on the side of the road like, why in God's name would he make a vulture? Is it just to eat the possum I ran over? Just to get, he's prepared them for a day. He's prepared all these nasty birds that eat all these dead animals. They're just preparing themselves for a day when he will say, boys, go get them. And they will be loosed and those vultures will, will clean up all the carnage of the dead. Revelation 19, 21. Their entire army was killed by the sword that came from the mouth of the one riding on the white horse. And the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. Next week, we're going to see what does Jesus do now that the vultures have pretty much cleaned up all the flesh, the blood's pretty much flowed off. Jesus has dealt with the Antichrist. Jesus has dealt with the false prophet. All of us and all of the angels are there on the Mount of Olives with him. What do we do now? And how do we get into the city? And how does he set his temple up? We're going to look at that next week, what to do. I thought I would end with this, and I hope you enjoy it, and I'll walk my way through it. Just kind of walk you through visually with what it will be like on that day. As Jesus begins to mount his horses, and here we come. And we begin to ride down into the Sinai Peninsula. You can see where uh, Iraq, where Babylon was, is now destroyed. You'll see Jerusalem in a minute pop up. The treasury there is where Petra is. So I, I gave you the mark of the first place he will show up. Jesus and the armies of heaven begin to descend out of heaven. The heavens have opened up and they begin to make their way into the land of Petra to prepare for the battle to destroy the southern armies of the Antichrist. And he will move into the land of Petra with us and the armies of heaven to deliver those. So I'll just give you some shots of Petra. Uh, where that treasury is, the picture that I showed you, this is an actual Google flyover. So I'll try to make it a little meaningful for you where you can actually see the picture. So that's where the first battle will be, where Jesus will come and his robe will be soaked in blood. He will gather that remnant of people with the armies of heaven as well and will begin to make his way according to what we said. I saw one coming from Eden, Edom. And he was coming toward Jerusalem. So we leave the land of Edom and we start making our way now with those armies of heaven and those Hebrews and Jews that have been saved. And Jesus begins to make his way into Jerusalem. <clears throat> As we come into Jerusalem now, we will begin to see the Temple Mount and where he will put his feet on the Mount of Olives. So where it says the western wall there, that is the actual wall, the western wall of the Temple Mount. 
And as we zoom in now, you'll begin to see the brown there, the brown area. Uh, right there, I'll kind of do my, my thing. Over. Right there, all the brown here is uh, the Kidron Valley where all the blood will flow. And Jesus will be standing here on the Mount of Olives and he will split that mountain in two. And then at the top of the screen where it says the Temple Mount is where the Antichrist has set up his image. So the moment he splits it in two... And the, and the gate begins to open up, <clears throat> we find that we're at the end. So praise God. I hope you like it. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on the Believer's Church YouTube channel. If you would like more information about Believer's Church, you can visit mybelieverschurch.com. If there is anything that you need prayer for, please email us at amen at mybelieverschurch.com. Be sure to check back next week for a brand new message.